November 17th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Shout out right at the top of the show goes to our new patrons. Thank you so much for joining on. You can also help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Um, welcome once again to all our new YouTube subscribers. Boom, it was a big week for new YouTube subscriptions. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to the show. And look, if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And leave a comment to let folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. Indeed. Well, on today's show, lots of cool stuff. <clears throat> cool is in sarcastic quotation marks there, of course. Elon Musk rips off the mask and jumps on the anti-Semitic conspiracy bandwagon on that platform formerly known as Twitter. Yep, you know, the one he owns. And new Republican Christian Nationalist Speaker of the House Mike Johnson calls on the separate calls the separation between church and state a misnomer and a misunderstanding of the true intent of the founders. Yes, indeed, indeed. And a judge has cleared the way for a slew of lawsuits against Meta and other tech giants to go forward. 42 state attorneys general and multiple school districts are suing the companies as knowingly designing their platforms to be addictive to kids, despite knowing, consciously knowing, the harm those platforms induce. Yes, indeed. It's all right there. A little closer to home, the Penridge School District faces a new federal civil, civil rights complaint over the Quote, district's ongoing discriminatory practices in an environment perceived as hostile due to ongoing race and sex-based harassment. Yes, indeed. The outgoing school board majority <clears throat> only poured fuel on the fires of discrimination, enacting overtly discriminatory policies. And the Central Buck School Board votes to give outgoing superintendent Abram Lukabau a $712,000 golden parachute after he abruptly resigned following the results of this month's elections. Newly elected incoming school board members say, what? Not so fast. <laughs> yes, indeed. It may be illegal, right, um, to do so. A federal judge also ordered Abram Lukaval not to delete any documents on his way out related to a federal lawsuit alleging retaliation against Central Bucks teacher Andre Burgess 
who helped file a federal discrimination complaint on behalf of a transgendered student. That's a Doylestown's own Pink. Yes, Pink, the singer. Pink. That Pink has teamed up with Pen America to give away more than 2,000 banned books during her shows in Florida this week. Shout out to Pink, indeed. And I've got a bunch of uh, book recommendations for everybody today uh, to close out the show. Um, I've been reading a whole lot. Uh, I've got some great recommendations from uh, from listeners that I've been picking up. And uh, so we'll talk about those for the end of the show today. I mean, especially give the holidays are coming up and you got Thanksgiving kind of break and vacation stuff coming up. If you're looking for some uh, cool stuff to read. I'll have some suggestions for you. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream every night on YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. And you got to subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast wherever you get your podcast. And a huge shout out and thanks to the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. Because um, because of them, uh, I am finally, finally on Blue Sky. Yes, indeed. Uh, thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. And it's great to be over on that platform, checking it out, seeing what it's up over there, um, seeing if it is going to be uh, the Twitter killer that I hope it will be. Um, but we shall see. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by, well, yours truly. Yes, indeed. Uh, twice a month, the signal will shine a light on new. Um, I'm sorry, not a new. Will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can uh, provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. New episode coming out Wednesday, right before Thanksgiving. You can check out that podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com. And also, you got to check out the Civic Circle. Right, the Civic Circle is a podcast from the Bucks County Beacon tackling politics and policy from a Gen Z lens. Sarah Zhang, Meryl, um, <coughs> Mallory Marson, and Alexandra Coffey are students from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and once a month they chat about activism, advocacy, and all the political happenings affecting their generation today. Check them out at civiccircle.podbean.com. And for all you gamers out there, once again, holidays coming up. But no better time than be checking out the Game In. That Game In with two ends. The Game In is a Quaker Town-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And good grades on report cards get your kids discounts, too. You got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get? They've got you covered. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In, again with two N's, at the Game In on Twitter. Or X. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And ooh, if you are find yourself in the Kutztown area, you've got to check out the Heart and Hearth Deli and Smokehouse located at 466 West Main. That is Kitty Corner from the Kutztown University campus. The Heart and Hearth is an American bistro featuring barbecue and French-inspired fare, all with locally sourced organic ingredients. It is the kind of place you can go in. It's grab and go. The food is amazing. You got these little hand pockets that are like with brisket inside. That, uh, my mouth is watering just talking about it. 
Uh, the place has just opened up um, from a good friend, uh, Colleen Fitzgerald. Uh, she's an amazing cook, and the food there is absolutely like phenomenal. You got to drop in if you're in the area. The Heart and Hearth Deli and Smokehouse, located at 466 West Main and Kitty Corner from Kutztown University Campus. Check them out on Instagram, check them out on Facebook, and make sure you let them know that uh, Raging Chicken sent you. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow him on Twitter um, at, so at Song of Day Man. Um, that's with two N's, at Song of Day Man. And you can check him out on his YouTube page as well. Look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron for Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is the Friday before Thanksgiving. I know a lot of people have got family stuff coming up. Um, I appreciate you stopping by and checking in on us as you're uh, heading into um, a big week. Um, lots of stuff going on. Lots of good news, lots of uh, future organizing stuff going on. Um, but all in all, I mean, I think these school board victories, I'm telling you, these school board victories this past, uh, this past election, right, November 7th, um, keep on having these reverberations um, throughout uh, what's happening locally. Uh, like I said in the headlines today, you've got these uh, civil rights lawsuits going forward. You've got... Um, uh, discrimination complaints being filed, right, all based upon the, the actions of these outgoing boards. And in some cases, like, you know, like in Penridge and Central Bucks, for that matter, um, you're talking about um, um, the bad actions of those school boards, right, um, not only exacerbated existing patterns of discrimination that were going on in those school districts, right, um, but they were the kind of thing that um, because people in the community stood up Right, stood up for trans kids, stood up for um, 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 people of color in the student um, students of color because uh, stood up for uh, like anyone and these kind of marginalized students basically stood up for all students to make sure all students were going to be safe in those schools. Right, basically what's what happened was that opened up a space for those kids and those families who felt singled out and kind of marginalized and excluded that opened up a space for them to come forward and tell their stories, right? I mean, this has just been, you know, and I think that this is going to be, this continue to go. This, and my point here in bringing that up <clears throat> at the top of the show is because it puts a highlight on the work, the, the, the implications and the, um, the, the benefits, if you will, of organizing, Right. I mean, it's not just that we elected a new like new school boards in Penridge and Central Bucks and some other places around the country, for that matter. It's not just that. Right. But the organizing. Yes, it was about the elections of the school board, but more so and more importantly. It created an opening of a new kind of community to come together. Right. I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the course of the, you know, God, the past several years who found each other because of the parents and community members who were organizing, showing up at school boards and standing up for, you know, 
put it in the Christian terms, the least among us, to stand up for those folks who are on the receiving end of discrimination and say, no, we've got you, right? And that was like, you know, I, I, I've mentioned this before about my argument about yard signs, right? And, you know, I hate the... I hate the way that the discussion about whether yard signs are effective or not when it comes to elections gets always reduced into in terms of the um, the number of votes. Like, does it convince somebody to vote for X, Y, and Z, right? And as I've said on the show many, many, many times, I think the value of those signs is not about the, you know, transactional one-for-one, one, does it convince somebody to vote, right? Obviously, that's important, right? You put them up, you're hoping to get these candidates elected. But what it, I, I've always felt the more non-tangible benefit of those yard signs when they would go up, especially in conservative areas, is there to let other people know that they're not alone, right? It's suddenly you say, oh, wait a minute. I thought I was the only one in this neighborhood that felt this way. And it turns out there's this person up the street who's got a yard sign who I've never met before. Maybe that's an opportunity for me to introduce myself. And I've done that myself. I mean, I go around, I see these yard signs and you know, I've seen people outside. I'm like, hey, what's going on? I love your yard sign. It's an opportunity to talk, right? And I'm not there. And when I'm, you know, when I was talking to the, the folks in my neighborhood who were, you know, had these yard signs up and I'm talking to them for the first time, I, I wasn't then therefore saying, okay, I'm trying to, you know, I'm going to then use this as an opportunity to get them to vote. I mean, yeah, we, were, could, we would talk about voting. We talk about that stuff. But most important and more long lasting, <laughs> are those networks of connection that are built up, right? And that's this, I, I would say this, that's analogous to what we see happening, what we have seen happening um, with the organizations and the campaigns that have built up around the school board elections, right? It's like the fact that the community, you know, it's not like, the, well, you know, there's a bright side to the bad actors that have been, no, 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 no. There's a bright side to the organizing, right? The organizing, not only did the organizing achieve, I think, unexpected victories, right? <laughs> really, I, and I, I don't necessarily mean like there was, you know, people didn't think anybody could win, but there was like, it was significant wins, right? These were significant wins, both in Penridge and Central Bucks, right? And I'm sorry I'd be focusing, I'm focusing so much on those. I'm going to have something to say about Saturday and Kutztown in a little bit too as well. But um, the, the, the effect of that, has been to build a, a kind of community, right? It's not effect, It's not like, oh, the bright side of having horrible actors in the world is that these, these other, you know, protections come up. No, 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 right? The horrible actors didn't cause that, right? The organization, the community groups, the, the campaigns are the ones that help foster that stuff. And now going forward, yeah, I didn't mean to talk about this at the top of the show, but, um, you know, and now going forward, it's basically... One of, the, one of the huge benefits of the organizing, right, and one of the huge benefits going forward is, like, now, uh, like, we're able to kind of address long-standing practices of discrimination and exclusion, right, in ways that are not um, kind of exactly uh, comfortable, right? And what I'm hoping, right, I, what I'm hoping for these new school boards, right, who the incoming school board majorities, right, who were just elected, right, the Democrats who were just elected. And again, I'm less concerned that they're Democrats and more concerned that they're, they're people who are on the side of students in the community, right, on the side of education, on the side of teachers, right? That's more where I'm concerned about. But what I'm hoping is that 
those new newly elected school board members are going to take all of this 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 history that has come out as part of the organizing campaigns and approach it as okay now we can do something about this stuff as opposed to say okay now it's solved because we got rid of the bad actors all right that's a mistake that's always happened right it's, uh, like in, in in major elections especially on the kind of like uh, on the democratic or progressive side of things i right, think oh and now we elected now now we now it's now it's over no 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 now you have an opportunity to do some things so looking forward to that uh yes amy how about that severance pay absurd yep i'm going to talk about that in a little bit that's uh that's incredible ross says yes we had a community of canvassing calling uh calling and school board meeting attendees yes absolutely ross and ross of course you were kind of there right from the beginning i mean uh you know you're one of those folks that was always showing up that was knocking every door that was showing up every meeting um you know it's just incredible incredible so before we go back to the school boards, I want to kind of just like touch on a few things that are happening uh, kind of nationally. And of course, you know, one of the things that, you know, uh, I mean, this is just like super, super disturbing. Um, you know, most things that Elon Musk does, does these days are. Um, but I don't know how many people saw this or not, but um, this is reporting from David Ingram from um, NBC News. The tech billionaire Elon Musk faced backlash from some Jewish leaders and at least one advertiser Thursday after he again embraced anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, the latest in a pattern of his echoing anti-Jewish bigotry going back years. Musk sparked criticism with six words he posted Wednesday afternoon on X, the social media app he purchased a year ago, responding to another user who had accused Jews of hating white people and who expressed the indifference to anti-Semitism, Musk wrote, you have said the actual truth. Goes on. On Thursday morning, Jonathan Greenblatt, the um, um, ADLs, the Anti-Defamation League CEO, said Musk was acting dangerously. Quote, at a time when anti-Semitism is exploding in America and surging around the world, it is indisputably dangerous to use one, uh, one's influence to validate and promote anti-Semitic theories, he wrote. Um, accounts with histories of espousing anti-Jewish views, um, uh, anti-Jewish Jews uh, celebrated Musk's tweet as welcome news as confirmation that he agrees with them on the JQ, short for the Jewish question, a term used by anti-Semites for decades. Quote, this is old-timey anti-Semitism with new lingo, said A.J. Bauer, an assistant professor of journalism who studies right-wing movements and media um, at University of Alabama. I mean, Musk, you know, basically coming right on and basically get, uh, pouring fuel onto the fire of anti anti-Semitic kind of action, right? And, you know, it can't come at a worse time, right? Because, you know, right now, right, you have, like, Israel, right, they just held this ridiculous rally in in Washington DC and I cannot even freaking believe um that the um that you had Hakeem Jeffries and other kind of Democratic Party leaders Schumer show up behind this thing this was not look it was a it was about kind of like you know against that anti-Semitism. that rally was a pro-war rally that took place in Washington DC and the Israel the right-wing Israeli government right now is trying to put the screws in Right. And say that if you are against the war, you are anti-Semitic. Right. They are trying to make to narrow the space. Right. So make that space so narrow to kind of critique is Israel's actions. Right. By clamping down on other Jews. Right. 
So you look at people like you Jews for Peace, right? Um, who who have been kind of out there talking, saying, no, you know, uh, the best sign I saw from some of the folks from um, from Jews for Peace were basically saying, was saying, look, look, never again. Didn't mean just never again, just for Jewish people. <laughs> never again, say never again, shall we stand in the face and watch indiscriminate killing of innocent people. Never again. Never again extended, extended beyond the narrow confines of a particular religion or ethnicity, right? It meant that because we know what it means to be victims of Holocaust, of genocide, never again will we allow genocide to be carried out in our names or anybody's names, right? And what Israel is trying to do, what they did with that kind of pro-war rally that they held in D.C., right? They're trying to basically say, no, 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 no. Never again meant, never again will we, will we kind of like stand against, or, or, you know, never again will, I don't know, much more like never again and for the Jews means gives Israel the permission to do whatever the hell it wants. Even some of the, the latest reporting has been just driving me absolutely crazy, Right, we saw you know like you know the bombing of the hospitals, right? And the Israeli army, right, continually says that came out and say basically you know comes out and says like, well, the, you know, it's like uh, Hamas has a secret like, has a secret bunker underneath there and they're going to store weapons. Let's 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 just for 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 the sake of argument, let's assume that Hamas does have weapons stores in some of these hospitals, that they did have safe houses in some of these hospitals, right? Just for the sake of argument. I'm not, I don't want to go back and forth with it because, you know, frankly, it's, I've read as much as I can and I can't, I can't make heads or tails of it. What's propaganda and what's real? You tell me, I don't know. You have doctors, you have patients that are coming out and say, there's, Hamas is not here. You have the, 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 you know, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces going and say, look, we found proof. I don't know. Right? And frankly, neither do you. What I do know, let's just assume, again, for the sake of argument, that Hamas did have a secret kind of like, you know, compartment or bunker, whatever you want to call it, beneath these hospitals. Israel's government right now wants us to ignore the indiscriminate killing of civilians because Hamas has a bunker there if that's even true, right? They basically say, because Hamas has a secret bunker there, therefore all those people are guilty. All those children that were murdered by Israeli bombs are guilty because they're sheltering Hamas. They're not saying that directly, but that's the implication of their arguments. They're saying civilian casualties are justified because Hamas has a secret stash of weapons underneath the, underneath the hospital. In what world is that justifiable? In what world is that an excuse for the violation of international guidelines, international rules of war? In what world is that okay to therefore justify the killing of innocent civilians, of kids? It's not. But here's the problem. Sam Cedar has been talking about this in the majority report, right? He has said... Right, that um, he has said, and I agree with this 100%. He said, the problem with what Israel is doing right now and the arguments that it's making, 
saying, it is going to make Jews everywhere less safe. Because anybody who is watching the indiscriminate killing of civilians here, especially if you're Palestinian, if you're Arab, if you're Muslim, (laughs) and you're watching people killed because they're Palestinian and poor, right? I mean, that's... That is going to give other terrorist groups, other, like, extremists, right? That's going to be, like, for in their brains, that's going to be justify their actions. And then there we go. Right? And let me be clear, once again, there is nothing that justifies what Hamas did in terms of the indiscriminate killing of civilians and the attacks that they did on October, October 7th in Israel. No, absolutely not. Do all those people deserve to be held accountable? 100%. Does that therefore mean that we can just slaughter civilians? No. So anyways, in the point what I was making there with Sam Cedar, like what he's basically is making Jews less safe, we're already seeing this huge uptick in anti-Semitic violence. Exactly what Sam Cedar said is what the Israelis' indiscriminate killing of civilians is going to have, is going to make Jews everywhere less safe. And sure enough, we've seen a huge spike in anti-Semitic violence in this country and across the world. From beatings to killings. I mean, this is this is happening right now. We're seeing it online. We're seeing the anti-Semitic stuff online, and we're seeing this. And again, does that mean that all there is is anti-Semitic stuff, that there's not anti-Muslim stuff, or there's not anti-Palestinian stuff? No, it does not. It means there's also an uptick in anti-Muslim, right? Anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian rhetoric and violence. As we saw when they kind of murdered that kid, because he was Palestinian refugee, he was a Palestinian refugee. Was it Michigan? So, Elon Musk owns that platform, owns that platform X, and he basically gives his seal of stamp of approval of the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, right? And these conspiracy theories that he's talking about are that Jews are secretly, right, behind. Right, these anti-white people rhetoric, which which Musk means, you know, all the kind of cancel culture stuff, all the kind of like, you know, uh, you know, trying to actually get people to teach real history as opposed to white history, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's like the Jews are really the ones who are doing it. That is a thousand, you know, two thousand year old conspiracy theory that has justified all sorts of violence against Jews. There's a great book that I'm reading right now. Um, well, two of them actually that uh, that address that talk exactly about this. I'll say this right now is like Naomi Klein's book. I just finished Doppelganger, and uh, her last kind of few chapters are haunting because it's about Israel and Palestine. And of course, this came this book came out well ahead of the current conflict or the, the onslaught, the attacks. Just haunting. 
So what, is, what, what are going to be the consequences for this guy? What are going to be the consequences for someone like Musk? Right? He knows that he's got so many of us, you know, by the scruff of the neck. Because we've become dependent upon these platforms. Like, I, I plead guilty for communicating with each other, for organizing with each other, for sharing information. But I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I was walking my dog this morning and that's all I'm thinking about is like, I, I, I really have got to, I've got to cancel, I got to get off Twitter somehow. I've got to get myself to a point where I can just, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to accept the fact that I'm going to lose connections with a bunch of people, that this show is going to no longer be heard by a bunch of people who are not going to, not going to be off Twitter. And I'm not saying that there's because they're anti-Semitic or something like that. I'm saying just because that's where political communities have congregated for so long. And they're right now, there does not exist another platform where, where everybody is on, right? I mean, that's the, that was the value of Twitter. As much as a shit show as it was, that the, the political communities were there so you could reach people relatively effectively. So, so I don't know. <clears throat> so we'll see. But that's just, uh, I mean, that was just, you know, just to see that, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Chris Hayes had a decent had a decent uh, segment on this last night too as well. If you want to check that out, but I would you know let's listen to what uh, you know. I'm sure that the major- they're going to be talking about this uh, today on the Majority Report um, that goes live at noon. Um, you can check them out um, too as well. I'm sure Sam Cedar is going to be talking about this today. In other grand news, uh, Republican Christian National Speaker uh, of the House Mike Johnson. I don't know if people saw this, but uh, yeah, you know, he's just doubling down on very particular readings of the Constitution of our history and saying, like, look, uh, you know, that whole idea of separation between church and state? Big misnomer. Misnomer. <laughs> yes. Right. And uh, you may have seen this, right? Uh, this came up in, there was a, uh, uh, there was some session that was going on in the in the House and he gathered on the House floor, bowed his heads, like people kneeling down on the floor, all this stuff, in prayer on the House floor, right? And he had already made a bunch of comments. If you recall this, we talked about this on the show. He said, well, people want to know about my views, right? Well, then they should go read the Bible. There's my views. That's what I believe. The Bible, right? So... Because he's made such an issue of that, you know, saying, well, I believe these are my Christian values that I'm bringing here, and that's what I'm going to kind of, like, govern on. Um, he was asked about that. You know, he was asked about this, okay, you know, hey, I saw you said their prayer. And what about the separation of church and state? Do you think any of you are going to take this wrong? And uh, this is from The Guardian. It said, Speaker of the House of Representatives Mike Johnson have delivered his verdict. Um, oh, has Wait, the Speaker of the House of Representatives Mike Johnson has delivered his verdict on the separation of church and state. It is a misnomer. The second in line to the presidency informed Americans on Tuesday that their time-honored conception of one of the founding principles of the country was a, quote, misunderstanding. Speaking to CNBC's Squawk Box, he tried to turn the, controversial, uh, the conventional wisdom about the founder's intention on its head 
claiming what they really wanted was to stop government interfering with religion, not the other way around. Quote, the separation of church and state is a misnomer, the speaker said in an interview with TV channel, uh, with a TV channel in the U.S. Capitol. Quote, people misunderstand it. Of course it comes from a phrase that was in a letter that Jefferson wrote. It's not in the Constitution, right? So what's, what's fascinating about that, right, of course, is that, is that all of these interpretations, right, they said, what were the founders' intent, right? The founders' intent, the way you learn about the founders' intent, even if you even believe that that's of value, right, is you read all the documents. You read the Federalist Papers. You read the Anti-Federalist Papers. You read the kind of their thought, right? If that you're trying to get intent, you look at things like that, like letters, like diaries, like drafts, right, to try to understand what was going on, right? And he's supposed to be one of those people, right? But, you know, no, we're going to separate out. We're going to sever the Constitution from anything that surrounds it now. And we're going to treat it like the Bible, right? So Johnson was referring to Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut, written in 1802, when the third president was in the White House. It makes clear that the founding fathers subscribed to a powerful separation of church and state church and state, which they enshrined in the Establishment Clause, the First Amendment. Jefferson, in his letter, quotes the Establishment Clause, saying that Congress should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote. He goes on to say that it builds a, quote, wall of separation between church and state, right? What Johnson wants us to believe is that Jefferson just made that up on the spot. Right, that he was like, oh, this is my idea that I'm going to write back to these people. No, he was trying to explain to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut, right, that no, there's a separation of church and state. That's what this means, right? That's what the establishment clause means. So, uh, you know, this is the guy, right? The article also says, you know, look, this is uh, his remarks are in line with his effort to bring Christianity to the American politics. The New York Times has dubbed him the first Christian nationalist to hold a powerful position of speaker. I agree. The article referring to, there's this great article by Thomas uh, Edsel, right, in the, in the, uh, the New York Times, right? And it's, a, a, it's called The Embodiment of White Christian Nationalism in a Tailored Suit. I think I made it may have made reference to this last week. It's a, it's a fantastic piece. Go check it out. Um, and in that piece, he said, look, Mike Johnson is the first person. This is, again, this is Thomas Edsel. Mike Johnson is the first person to become Speaker of the House who can fairly be described as a Christian nationalist, a major development in American history in and of itself. Equally important, however, is his ascension. Uh, however, his ascension reflects a strength of white evangelical voters' influence in the House of Repub House Republican Caucus, voters who are determined to use power of government to roll back the civil rights, women's rights, and sexual revolutions. Quote, Johnson is a clear rebuttal to the overall liberal societal drift that's happening in the United States, unquote. Ryan Burge, a political scientist um, at the Eastern Illinois University, wrote by email in response to my query. Quote, his views are far out of step with the average American and even with a significant number of Republicans, unquote. And yet he was chosen speaker. If anything, it shows us that white evangelicals still have very strong hold in the modern Republican Party. They are losing overall market share in the larger culture, but they are certainly taking an outsized role in Republican politics, right? And now they own the speakership of the uh, House of Representatives, right? 
So if you ever wonder why uh, we focus so much on these roots, right, the backgrounds, the organizations that um, it, that bolster Christian nationalism, like why so much reporting in the Bucks County Beacon is focused on these uh, Christian nationalist influences, right? These are the perfect reasons. I mean, we had Jenny Cohen on the show, right, this past Monday, right, talking about her recent piece in the Bucks County Beacon on Moms for Liberty and their connection to these kind of dominionists and so on, right? Um, and, you know, she's, I mean, if you've read her work, you know she's awesome. I mean, her work is just phenomenal. Um, and in that piece, in our discussion on Monday, she, you know, unpacks these connections with organizations like Moms for Liberty. The reason why we spend so much time focusing on that is precisely because of this, right? The dominionist, the kind of Christian nationalist more broadly, they have an understanding of, of, of power, right? They are not in this, they don't believe in democracy, right? That's the, that's the important thing we have. They believe in utilizing the tools of democracy in order to take power, right? That is something, for example, fascists of all stripes have understood for a long time. Democracy is not necessarily an impediment for fascism. It is just the one, one of the many ways to get there, right? If you can create a situation where you have enough fear or you have enough control or you can kind of enshrine minority rule, which is what we have in this country right now, for the most part, because of arcane systems of, of our elections, right? Because of the Supreme Court who are appointed for life, and you had a will to power by Republicans for the past like four decades, right? Now we have a Supreme Court that is turning back step by step all these gains that have been made over the centuries, at least the 20th century. So, so there we have it. In other news, um, I don't know if people saw this too as well. This was. Uh, this was it was interesting. I, I'm just in uh, in my in my classes right now. I'm watching this film called The Social Dilemma, and people may have seen it. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original documentary, and it features a bunch of former um, um, tech CEOs and engineers, right? That you know, like the guy who basically helped develop Gmail and the one who ran uh, Pinterest for the longest time, and the one who you know, I mean, did all the designing, the work behind you know X, Y, and Z on Facebook, who all kind of have left these companies and now are speaking out about the dangers of uh, social media and the, how the algorithms work and how they're dangerous and they're you know they're causing major issues in society. And I think that 2016 was probably a good uh, a wake up call for all those folks who basically saw what was going on. Um, the tech, the major tech uh, companies were like, you know, thrilled that they were making hand over fist money, even though that their algorithms were helping, like, you know, were pouring jet fuel on kind of misinformation and conspiracy theories. We saw it again during COVID, right? Where over kind of like, you know, I forget what the, where, where the numbers are now, but well over a million people were died of the coronavirus in here, in part because so many people were bought into the conspiracy theories and misinformation, not to mention our government's complete and utter lack to actually deal with the, um, deal with the pandemic as an opportunity to really kind of buttress and un upheld and kind of under, you know, undergird, whatever you're going to say, that put a strong floor underneath our, um, our social safety nets, but whatever. So these folks basically spoke out and they're talking about, and they talk in detail about what the algorithms do because they know, right? 
So after that film, um, apparently, um, a whole bunch of anecdotal. There's a, there's a uh, great segment on uh, New York Times has got you know its its main podcast, The Daily. Um, they featured this. I think it was on uh, Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. They featured a story. I'm pretty sure Wednesday. Uh, about this, these lawsuits that are being brought by 42 state attorneys general against Meta, right? Um, again, you know, that's the parent company of Facebook. You know, Facebook changes its name because, um, you know, so now it's Meta and Meta owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, um, threads, right? I mean, it's all the same company. Um, and basically these, uh, because of what was in the film and because of some other research, there was a whistleblower from Facebook uh, who came out and she gave testimony before Congress. Um, there were hearings before Congress and finally these state attorneys general said, look, there's no action happening at the federal government level, so we're gonna do it. So they joined together to bring these, these lawsuits against Meta, basically saying, look, you knowingly are harming kids. Not to mention like wrecking our culture, <laughs> right? And they have documents. They have clear documents that show that Facebook engineers knew what they were doing and they knew what they were doing was harmful. And right at the very top, and in one case that they feature on uh, in the podcast, in one case, um, Mark Zuckerberg himself um, decided against making Instagram less harmful to kids. The engineers basically say, hey, like, we keep on hearing these reports that, you know, there's a problem with these kind of cosmetic surgery filters that keep on getting put up, that it's having negative impacts on kind of young girls, right, young kids in general. Maybe we should take a look at that. And so they did. They took a look at it. And guess what they concluded? Oh, yeah, holy crap, this is having a real bad influence. <laughs> this is having negative effects. We can measure it. We see this. We need to stop this. We change it. Let's get rid of it, and we're going to ban those kind of apps right, that are going to kind of encourage the worst of um, kind of self-hatred and body shame, all that other kind of stuff, right? And so they do that, they go forward and uh, bring it up. And Mark Zuckerberg himself, they have email correspondence showing this says, no, we are not getting rid of it. It's too popular. There you go. And the film and the social dilemma, they make it clear the business model of these tech companies, right, is at odds with the health of our society, <laughs> right? That one example I gave is just one example. So these attorneys generals are bringing lawsuits. Uh, there's a bunch of school districts in addition who are also bringing lawsuits along similar lines. And Meta basically, of course, they're like, oh, they can't do this. You know, we, we don't have anything to do with this. We can't be held responsible for content that gets put up on there. Well, a uh, federal judge basically ruled that, nope, you do, sorry, yep. As a reporting from The Verge, um, they say Meta, ByteDance, because I should say, I just talked about Meta. Those are the attorneys general's focus, but uh, this has implications and there are other lawsuits going across different platforms. So here it is. Meta, ByteDance, Alphabet, and Snap must proceed with a lawsuit alleging that their social platforms have adverse mental health effects on children, a federal court ruled on Tuesday. U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers rejected the social media giant's motion to dismiss the dozens of lawsuits uh, accusing the companies of running platforms that are addictive to kids. School districts across the United States have, fi have filed suit against Meta, ByteDance, Alphabet, um, and Snap, alleging the companies cause physical and emotional harm to children. And meanwhile, 42 states sued Meta last month, that's what I'm talking about, over um, claims that Facebook and Instagram, quote, 
profoundly, profoundly altered the psychological and social realities of generations of young Americans, unquote. This order from the judge addresses the individual suits and over 140 actions taken against the companies. Tuesday's ruling states that the First Amendment and Section 230, which says that online platforms shouldn't be treated as the publishers of third-party content, does not shield Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, and all liability from all liability in this case. Judge Gonzalez Rogers notes that many of the claims laid out by the plaintiffs don't, quote, constitute free speech or expression, unquote, as they have to do with alleged, quote, defects on the platforms themselves. This includes having insufficient parental controls, no robust age verification systems, and a difficult account deletion process. Quote, addressing these defects would not require defendants change how or what speech they disseminate, unquote, Judge Gonzalez Rogers writes. Quote, for example, parental notifications could plausibly empower parents to limit their children's access to the platforms or discuss platform use with them, unquote. And it goes on. Um, so this is a huge, this is a huge deal, right? Um, and it, it addresses even something we just already talked about with like something, someone like Elon Musk, right? Is what they're saying is that the platforms, people can say whatever they're going to say, right? You can't, Facebook can't be held accountable for me going on Facebook and, uh, and spouting my opinions. However, they are responsible for the algorithms, they are responsible for the design of the technology and what the technology does. And because of the way the technology works, because of the way the algorithms work, right, it's causing harm. Not the speech, but the algorithms and the design of the technology. So what does that mean? So for example, if I want to go on a platform and make some kind of inflammatory statement against somebody, whether it's like like someone like like Musk, like if I came up with my own conspiracy theory about Musk that was completely wrong and dangerous, right? That would be my speech. That is the kind of thing that the judge was saying Okay, look, Facebook, Twitter, I think can't be held accountable for that. However, if my speech, my false conspiracy violent speech, <laughs> right? Incendiary, let's, let's not even call it violent. Let's call it incendiary, right? So we're not jumping over different constitutional questions. So it's not incendiary. So if I do all that, the question is, if the platform, if the algorithm and the technology then boosts that statement, because it because it attracts more conspiracy nuts and shows more people that content and pushes out that content so that the platform can earn more money, that's not speech. That's the business plan. <laughs> right? So there you go. I mean, this is this is really good news, I think. This is really, really good news. So we'll be following those lawsuits too as well. I think these are gonna be really significant. I think that um, so much of what's happened to social media, um, like those of us who got on social media and saw and got on social media because of 
the possibilities and the points of connection and the ability to organize, right? The ability to share and find other people, right? All that stuff. For those of us who got on that, what's happened with social media, it runs counter to those very goals. In the film, The Social, the social Dilemma, um, one of the engineers says that one of the problems of thinking about this, one of the problems of dealing with, with, with these, with, with the implications of social media and the design and the business model of social media is because people experience the same platform as both utopia and dystopia at the same time. It's both this point of connection, being able to talk to people you'd never have the opportunity to talk to before, build connections, organize all that stuff, make friends, laugh, all that. And those things are true. People have that experience. And at the same very time, it's also destructive to society. It's causing people to hate their own bodies and their own identities, right? All that stuff, they're happening at the same time. So what that tends to leave users as at the position is to be like, well, like, like, like I was saying earlier, like, what decision do I personally make in my relationship with this? Do I give up those connections because of the anti-Semitic actions of Elon Musk or because of what they're doing? Those are difficult choices to make. And that's what neoliberalism does anyways, right? I mean, just more broadly, neoliberalism is that system that pushes all those kind of decisions onto individuals and basically saying the companies, the big folks up top, the CEOs, the corporations, all those people that are making money off our dismay, they're not responsible. We as individuals must make those choices. And somehow the magic hand of the market, I call this the magical thinking, right? If enough of us do this, then it'll magically change. That's just a load of garbage. That's a way of keeping democratic control away from the private accumulation of capital. That's all it is. These lawsuits have a, poten have a potential to put a chink in that neoliberal armor that these big tech companies are kind of cloaking themselves in. So there you go. Well, what else we got? Well, we got the, uh, you know, closer to home here. Um, big news. Uh, you probably saw this first. Jenny Stevens reported on this in the Bucks County Beacon that we've got a, uh, uh, a federal civil rights complaint was filed this week against the Penridge School District. I'll read you a little bit from the, uh, from the top line of her piece. She says, civil rights and advocacy groups filed a federal civil rights complaint on Wednesday on behalf of four students, one teacher, and families within the Penridge School District. The complaint aims to challenge discriminatory practices, uh, policies, practices, and an environment perceived as hostile due to ongoing race and sex-based harassment. Quote, for years, teachers, students of color, and LGBTQ plus students have reported race and sex-based harassment, including students routinely using the N-word toward black students and students threatening violence against LGBTQ plus students, quote, the complaint states, quote, but district officials have refused to remedy the systemic and pervasive nature of race and sex-based harassment, unquote. Filed with the Office of Civil Rights, the OCR, in the U.S. Departments of Education and Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, the complaint asserts an array of allegations, including policies and practices in Penridge that are anti-LGBTQ plus and 
racially discriminatory, a failure to address the bullying of students of color and LGBTQ plus students, intentional curriculum revisions that deliberately remove dialogue surrounding racism and oppression from the classroom, the removal of literature or book banning that explores diverse life experiences and discriminatory bathroom and sports policies. The Education Law Center PA and the Advocacy for Racial and Civil, uh, Civil Justice Clinic of the University of Pennsylvania Cary, School, uh, Cary Law School facilitated the filing on behalf of the Bucks County NAACP and the Pair Up Society and families negatively impacted by the district's dismantling of the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative and the failure to implement corrective actions and address multiple complaints about race and sex-based incidents. Quote, all students deserve safety and dignity at school, said Karen Downer, president of the Bucks County NAACP, an organization represented by, in the complaint. Quote, unfortunately, Penridge has created an environment that is hostile for some students because of their race, sex, or gender identity, unquote. And there's more. Do check that out. Fantastic reporting by, uh, by Jenny Stevens. Um, and there's been, you know, more articles that emerged after her reporting and after that case has kind of go a lot, started to go a little bit more public. I'm in the middle of reading the full complaint right now. And what's remarkable about it, it's not just people claiming this, is there's all these direct statements from interviews with students and family members about what the history of discrimination has looked like. And let's be clear, this is why I said what I said at the very beginning of the show today. These practices of discrimination have extended beyond the last school board majority. They were there before that. Right, you know, before Joan Cullen became a, a an, 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 an advocate against or a critic of Vermilion schools and, and kind of Christian nationalist education, before she was that critic of Megan Bannis Clemens and the kind of Moms for Liberty crew of the board, um, she was the one who was leading the charge on exactly these policies. Right? That's why I keep on saying over and over again, Joan Cullen, thank you for what you're saying on the school board now. But let's be clear, the rest of us, <laughs> that she is not an ally. She, in many ways, got all of this going years ago. So let's be clear about that. So I'm looking forward to do this. I have reached out, just letting you know, I have reached out to some folks at the uh, Environmental Law Center of PA uh, to see if we can get them to come on the show. Um, we might have some back and forth. They, they seem really encouraged. So they're, um, we're looking at scheduling issues and things like this. I'm really hoping we get someone on the show uh, right following Thanksgiving, uh, what the first or second week following Thanksgiving to talk about um, this complaint and some of the history um, that is alleged in these documents. So um, kudos to all the folks who did work on that. I seem to have lost something. Hold on. <laughs> what have I done? Anyways, um, I don't know how I, I, I managed to kind of click off my notes, and then I'm like, where am I going? Um, so there you have in Penridge. That's the big news in Penridge. In, uh, in Central Bucks, the big news in Central Bucks, of course, was that one of its last acts, right? Remember, Central Bucks too as well. You had a kind of radical, um, kind of, you know, extremist, right? Extremist school board, like funded in large part by Paul Martino, um, advocates of, you know, these extreme kind of policies of all sorts of lawsuits that are being brought up against um, Central Bucks for discriminatory practices, just like in Penridge. 
right? They lost their majority in the elections too as well. Um, and so they lose the elections, right? And now it's clear that you're going to have a, now a Democratic majority on the board. And once again, I will caveat that by saying I care less about the fact that they're Democrats than I do about the fact that they are advocates of schools, advocates of kids, and advocates of, of teachers. And they are 100% against the kind of discriminatory practices that have been going on in Bucks, on Central Bucks, right? So just having said that, okay, so the outgoing, like, Republican majority, they, they said, okay, oh, shoot, we lost. And their little puppet, right, Abram Lukabau, I don't even want to call him a puppet because that takes away some of his agency, right? He was in there making conscious decisions for himself. When he got that big raise, right? You remember, they gave him a big raise after he agreed and after he was in, you know, made, they got, you know, harassed that teacher, um, implemented um, anti-LGBTQ policies, right? And they wanted to give him a nice little pat on the back. Good job. Good job, buddy. Good job, buddy. So they gave him a big raise. Well, his buddies on the school board lose the election. And what does he do? Resigns. <laughs> it's like, oh. I better get out of here. I better get out of here now. They're going to come for me. I'm not going to work with them, right? Wait, I thought I was locked in here. So as a final thank you for all the work that Abram Lukabal did to advocate for and enforce these discriminatory policies, what does the Central Bucks GOP-dominated board do in one of their last acts before the new school board kind of um, school board members take um, take office? They said, "Okay, oh, we're sorry to see you go. We're sorry to see you go, buddy, Luca Bow. So what we're going to do? We're going to give you a seven hundred and twelve thousand dollar golden parachute on your way out as just a little thank you, right?" So to add insult to injury, not only did they vote to give that dude a $712,000 golden parachute, right? they also decide to add a nice little cherry on their discriminatory Sunday by passing anti-trans policies in the district. How about that? If that doesn't kind of tell you everything you need to know, right? Right? I mean, it's just incredible. So in at that same night, they vote for that, and because they have a six to three majority, right? Um, uh, they also voted. Uh, uh, well, I'm just going to read this. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, right? So, um, uh, let's see. Let's see. So the agreement for Lukabau, as with other measures, had a six-three vote. It wasn't the only matter uh, uh, the board passed on Tuesday, in what one public commenter uh, dubbed its quote revenge agenda. One hundred percent. Talk about on the nose, like kudos to that commenter. <laughs> the board barred transgender athletes from participating on sports teams aligned with their gender identities and approved the appeal of redistricting decision that could affect the balance of power in the district for years to come. Board President Dana Hunter defended the payout, saying Democrats who swept the district's recent school board elections were likely preparing to fire Lukabal, and the cost of the district would have been much higher if they did. This is the best thing, not only for our district financially, but the best thing we can do for him. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you, Luca. I like to call him Luca. Nonsense. Nonsense. So they passed anti-trans stuff, and they passed 
this big payout uh, for Lukovic. Incredible. So that happens, right? Gets tons of coverage. Um, but guess what happens? Well, you know, the incoming board members, the incoming board members are there and they're kind of saying, ah, not so fast, not so fast. Right, you're saying, I don't think that that's work. So this is from uh, great reporting here from uh, Joe Ciavaglia. Uh, Chiavagula, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting your name wrong. I know Chiavagula, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it right, but great reporting her in uh, Philly Burbs, right? Um, uh, the Courier Times, great stuff. The incoming Central Bucks um, school board will look into whether the outsized severance pack package for former superintendent Abram Lukabau is legally binding. Karen Smith, the only returning incumbent, confirmed Wednesday the board will examine the agreement approved Tuesday night in a 6-3 vote along party lines, citing an attorney review that found it, quote, void and unenforceable in its entirety, unquote, under a 2012 change in state law. The letter written by uh, by Curtin Hefner, attorney, um, a Curtin Hefner attorney, Brendan Flynn, to District Solicitor Jeffrey Garten, Warning of the potential legal violation was referenced during a contentious meeting. Garten announced his res uh, resignation on Tuesday, but said he planned to stay on until the successor was appointed. Flynn, whose law firm represents four of the five incoming Democratic board members, argues that the package expected to cost taxpayers more than $712,000 is, quote, unlawful on multiple fronts, according to a copy of the letter. So that's like the... We're going to put the brakes on that one, right? Whoa, we're going to put the brakes on that one. So not only that, right? This is like what I mean. It's like this is the school board elections, the input or the, the, the ramifications or the the knock-on effects, if you will, of, of winning these elections is, is just exposing all sorts of stuff. So there's this one. So now we're going to find out that this is this could potentially violate the law, and one of their last acts to commit an illegal act. So we'll see where that goes, right? Um, but then, after Lukabov's resignation, a federal judge orders the Central Buck School District and Abram Lukabov not to delete documents related to Andrew Burgess's lawsuit against the district. Andrew Burgess remembers that was that teacher who was retaliated against by, by Lukabaugh and the school board and everything because he helped a student file a federal lawsuit about a discriminatory discrimination lawsuit against the district for discrimination against uh, that, that student um, on grounds of the gender identity. Right. So again, this is, uh, this is reporting by Joe Ciavaglia. I hope I got it that right. <laughs> I'll just read from her stuff. Cause it's, you know, I'm just going to, she did the work, right? So here it is. Fallout over a controversial $700,000 superintendent buyout in the Central Buck School District has found its way into federal lawsuit involving a district middle school teacher alleging retaliation. In separate orders Thursday, U.S. District Judge Timothy Savage ordered the district and its former superintendent, Abram Lukabau, not to destroy any documents that could be relevant to a lawsuit filed earlier this year by Andrew Burgess. 
One of the orders is directly related to the severance package the district approved for Lukabaugh on November 14th, his last day as a superintendent. This is like so underhanded. This is, I mean, so Savage ordered Lukabaugh not to delete any information, quote, confidential or otherwise, from his district-issued laptop. Both Lukabaugh and the school district are named as defendants in Burgess's lawsuit, which was filed in April. Lukabaugh is being sued in his official and individual capacity. The ACLU of Pennsylvania, which represents Burgess, filed a motion seeking to preserve the laptop contents following the approval of Lukabaugh's buyout package, which included language allowing him to keep his district-issued laptop. Right? I mean, like, are you kidding me? Like, first of all, like, and and you, uh, 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 V told uh, Walzak, right, he's the legal director of ACLU of Pennsylvania, said he filed the motion after the attorney representing the district did not respond to his email, raising concerns about preserving documents on the laptop. The fact that ACLU, like, V told Walzak, caught this in that severance package, like this, and realized what the implications of that could be all kudos to you. Matter of fact, you should go back and check. Uh, uh, we told Walsack was interviewed. Uh, Cyril uh, Michaleko from the Bucks County Beacon interviewed him for the signal. You should check out that interview. Um, that, that dude is, is great. He was explaining what some of these lawsuits were. But anyways, so basically in the buyout package, they say, oh, yeah, not only are we going to give you tons of money, right? We're going we're gonna to buy out all your sick days, right? And, you know, people, members on the board of the community are like, that never happens, who, does, who gets that, right? No, we're just going to give it all to you. Not only that, they basically said, oh, yeah, by the way, that laptop, you know, like, secret, you know, whispering in his ears, that laptop, you know, that you uh, wrote all those emails to us and you did all that work on that we corresponded with, right, about, uh, like, our plans for our discriminatory plans in the district. Oh, yeah, by the way, take that with you. Like, we don't really want that around here. Right, take it with you as you leave, so that they can't get it. Right, and Walsack and the ACLU are like, ah, nope, <laughs> no, I don't think so. We've seen this playbook before, and it's not going to happen. So now, if I mean, this is like, I just like, I love this shit, right? Because it's like, if 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 Luca Ball basically tries to get rid of that laptop or destroy any contents, that is a that is illegal under this judge order. So if he thought by resigning right away was going to clear him of this stuff and he was going to be able to destroy the evidence, right? And if, you know, his whisperers on the school board were saying like, hey, make sure that uh, it's, you know, just kind of think about it like the national parks. You know what I'm saying? Leave no trace. <laughs> ACLU was like, no, wait a minute. I can see your garbage a mile away. You don't get to bury it. Right. So anyways, so I, I don't know, I, I shouldn't be enjoying this so much, but I just I thought the fact that ACLU caught this so quickly, realized the implications and a federal judge put a halt on that almost immediately was so impressive and so on the mark that I just kudos, <laughs> kudos to you guys. Awesome. Uh. So yeah, so that's what, those are the things I really wanted to focus on this week, and you know we've got a lot more coming up. And look, I and 
there's there's so much going on. I do want to mention, you know, a couple things. Um, so while we have these huge victories um, that we are still seeing the implications on, um, let's see, Jenny Stevens asked, did the lawyer who drafted Luca Ball's new contract in the 40% raise in July draft a severance package too? I do not know that, Jenny. That's a great question. That's a great question. It seems to me that because it's okay, I'll tell you what my assumptions were, but you know, as you ask that question, I don't know the answer to this directly. But uh, the district lawyer um, who has overseen all these new policies and everything, who is actually staying on, right, not bailing out right now, was there when the the new contract was developed. And when the and since that person is still here, right? Um, as I was just reading about, let me see what the attorney. Let me see what this guy is. It's a great question. Uh, I just said the guy's name, and I can't remember it for life. It starts with a G, I think. Jeffrey Garten. That's a district solicitor. So Garten, um, he, well, he says. He wasn't involved in drafting the agreement and hadn't analyzed it in terms of classified uh, classified as severance versus the payments of Lukaba. So according at least to Garten, the that he was not directly involved. So the question is, so your question, Jenny, I think is right on the money. Is like, well, who was involved? Who was the lawyer there? And was that lawyer, um, right? And I could kind of see where your mind's going here. Um, that's a great question. I would assume that um, any legal documents that are filed in there, there would be the stamp of that. But, you know, again, I think if we have, you know, these uh, Christian nationalist um, legal firms that have been consulted, who have been consulting with the district, they have, uh, they very often, and I believe this is true in Central Bucks, uh, give free legal advice. And... We had, uh, I think Alyssa Bowen was on the show um, talking about this at one point, and we had somebody else on the show um, was talking about the Independence Law Center and some of the associated organizations who purposely and by design offer their advice pro bono because it's a way, they perceive at least, of getting around some of the reporting requirements um, legal reporting requirements from, you know, state law. So if I'm giving you free legal advice, it doesn't have to be mentioned, right? Um, so good questions. I don't know. These are, you're just hearing my, my wheels turning in my head um, as you ask that question, Jenny. Um, yeah. So last thing, I just thought it was kind of cool news that uh, Doylestown's Pink uh, has teamed up with PEN America to give away more than 2,000 banned books during her shows in Florida. Um, it was kind of pretty cool. Um, again, I think it's it's valuable that she is from Doylestown and she's doing this in Florida where some of the, the most discriminatory and anti-public education uh, agenda is, is on the table right now thanks to um, uh, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, also presidential candidate. Um, but she's, you know, got shows going on down there in South Florida. And so she's decided, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to partner up with, uh, PEN America, PEN America, are the ones who, of course, they track the, you know, the, um, um, 
the banning of books. They came out with this big report that we've talked about on the show multiple times about you know, the most banned books and what's happening, where they are, and seeing this big increase. Um, so she's given them all out. Right, uh, fans are going to receive. Um, she says, "Pen or uh, this is you know according to reporting at um, six ABC News out of Philly." Um, Pink says, "Quote: I'm a voracious reader, and I'm a mom of two kids who are also voracious readers." Quote: Pink said during a live stream on Instagram on Sunday. Quote: And I can't imagine my own parents telling me um, telling me what my kids can and cannot read, let alone someone else's parents, let alone someone else who doesn't even have children that are deciding what my children can read. Unquote. And fans will receive a copy of The Family Book by Todd Parr, The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman, Beloved by Toni Morrison, or one of the books from the uh, Girls Who Code series by the nonprofit that shares the same name. Just pretty cool. Um, Pretty cool. So, uh, you know, it's always never too late, um, especially as we're going into the holiday season to uh, if you're looking for gifts for people and things like this um, to make sure you check out your local bookstore um, and ask them if they have a list of banned books. Um, Those are always great gifts. (laughs) Those are always great gifts and say, hey, look, you know, um, you know, I I do a lot of my my book ordering directly through the Doylestown bookshop because they're pretty close to us. Sometimes I order stuff through Firefly Bookstore out in Kutztown, um, given how much support that they have shown um, for students, right, supporting the Teen Band Book Club out there. Um, make sure that you are supporting your local bookstores. I just saw this piece of news, by the way, um, speaking of local bookstores, I just saw this, this piece of news uh, that came out that said Barnes & Noble is looking to open up a store in Doylestown someplace. Um Let's think about this ahead of time, right? Let's think about this collectively and collaboratively, and let's make sure um, that we have places like the Doylestown Bookstore, which has been a a feature, right, and an institution, um, community institution in Doylestown, to make sure that we are not going to just take an easy route of going to Barnes & Noble, um, where we can take the easy route of going to Doylestown Bookshop, right? Um, For example... So that I was raising that up, you know, there's always a concern, right? Um, there's a reason why Barnes and Noble is deciding to kind of locate there. Um, they probably recognize that a lot of people buy books at Doylestown Bookshop and hey, is it a business opportunity? Um, but we cannot allow these giant, giant corporations to put like local business out of, uh, you know, local businesses out of business, right? You just can't do it, especially when it comes to books and access to information. So head on over to the Doylestown Bookshop, head to Firefly Bookstore, head into any local bookstore that um, you've got. You can also check out bookshop.org, right? I think that's what it is. Let me see. It's bookshop.org. Yep, bookshop.org, where you can support independent uh, bookstores. You can go and you can search for books online, um, just like you would on any of those other kind of big companies. Uh, you can choose the bookstore, that which you want to kind of make sure that they get a, a cut of what's going on, and you can order directly through there if you're looking to order books. Um, but I always think it's great if you can order directly from the store, because then you can go to the store and, uh, you know, see what else is there and let other know, people know that, you're, you know, that you're supporting them. So having said that, I've got a couple uh, book recommendations for everybody. Um, one of them, as, as you know, we've, we've already talked about this on the show, um, that you get check out Mike Gambone, my colleague and friend, uh, at Kutztown did a great review of Naomi Klein's book, uh, Doppelganger, right? Um, and it's funny, I ran into him in the hall when I was, I just bought the book and didn't know that he was reading it yet. And he said, Oh, by the way, Naomi Klein's book is he's good one. You got to, I said, I just got it. I'm just, gonna, just starting to read it. Um, and he did a book review of it for the um, 
uh, for the Bucks County Beacon. You can check it out over there. Um, it's called Take a Trip into the Mirror World with Naomi Klein's new book, Doppelganger. Fantastic. Mike did a really good review of it. Um, it's like right on the money in terms of what the book is about. And it's interesting. You know, I did some, the past couple of days, I started reading some other book reviews um, for Doppelganger. And uh, I, I just, I, I was literally shaking my head at some of these book reviews because I was like, they just kind of missed the point. <laughs> they just missed the point of the book. Um, it's just very, it's just very strange to me. I, you know, I was, I, there was, there was an article in the New York review of books that I just thought was just awful. Um, there was one, it was a pretty decent review in the Washington post of the book, right. On, in terms of like being a good review, but it kind of glossed over a lot of like the deeper stuff in, that was, was there in the book, right. The whole premise of doppelganger, you know, I shouldn't say the premise, the the kind of literary technique, if you will, right, that got this whole thing going and got her on this doppelganger kick was the confusion that people make between her and Naomi Wolf, right? And this became like a, a blurring during COVID, especially when everything kind of really, really went online. And of course, Naomi Wolf was a, you know, a feminist who wrote The Beauty Myth, and she was a feminist icon for a long time. She became like a consultant for Al Gore, like, presidential campaign, right? So she had a lot of, you know, she, you know, really had a lot of attention, right? She had a lot of traction and she had a long history. But she went off the deep end. Now she's a regular, like a regular uh, uh, guest on Steve Bannon's podcast. She has been one of the strongest propagators of conspiracy theories, anti-COVID spirit conspiracy theories, um, all sorts of the worst stuff, right? You know, she, she herself is Jewish. However, she... Plays around with the anti-Semitic stuff too, as well. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's that. And so Naomi Klein, who of course writes about right the corporate takeover of our world and how it's happening, right, and things like this about climate change and like you know all this stuff. When Naomi Wolf kind of went off the deep end, conflating that those those two, right, and and in some cases Wolf even making uh, kind of benefiting from that confusion. Um, Naomi Klein writes that during COVID, these, you know, she became kind of obsessed with this confusion and what to do about it. But the book is not about that, right? Is that that is a story that kind of frames and anchors, right? That back and forth, Naomi Wolf, Naomi Klein, right? That kind of first got her thinking about this doppelganger stuff, but then noticing these kind of, tendencies within our culture. And, you know, she says this in, in the book, she says at one point, and I, I was so glad to hear this. I actually told my wife about it too. I was so glad to hear this because I have tried to describe why Naomi Klein's work is so important to me, to people a thousand times over. Uh, she is without a doubt, probably, uh, you know, the books that I keep closest to me. Every book that she has come out, she, it is felt to me, like she's been able to name these tendencies that I've been struggling to, to, to name. She, and she talks about her work. You know, she's reflecting on her work at one point and she says, well, part of a lot of what I do in my work, a lot of way how I tell people about my work is that what I do is pattern recognition. And I was like, totally, that's it. Totally. 
and by pattern recognition and then naming those patterns and understanding them is useful in the world because it allows us to kind of act on that as opposed to having to kind of like put out fires in every single direction. Klein has always been so amazing at being able to kind of say, well, these fires aren't all these separate fires all over the place. Actually, we can see this as a structure and part of a system. This is how it functions and how it works. And these are the people behind it, right? That's the, the glory part. Anyways, so this book uh, is looking at a lot of what we're all experiencing, whether you're talking about the things that we're facing locally in school board elections, more broadly in our culture, particularly how it got highlighted and really sharpened during the Trump era, how that continues. The building up of right-wing media and these kind of divorcing of groups of people so that people have two separate worlds. That's what she calls the mirror world, right? Who are in this kind of self-referential kind of conspiracy-laden right-wing media sphere. And that's what really more was what she's interested in. And then on top of that, why this book is, why I think this book is so valuable. I would love to read this book with other people, by the way. If anybody else wants to read it, let me know. I mean, and we'll can set something up online or in person. I, I would just, I think it'd be really useful. But what she does is she's also very reflective about her practices and our practices on the broad left. And it feel it felt to me when I was reading this book like it, a little bit of a of a pause, or I should say, like some reflective distance. I'd be able to kind of say, how do we actually behave in the world? How do we build movements that are capable of being sustained, and then kind of like enact the enact the way that we want to be? And act that future. Because, and I think she's right about this, a lot of the way that we behave, and, you know, I, I'm not excluding myself from this, right? We behave on in online spaces in particular is detrimental to the movements that we hope to create. Right? I was looking for this uh, this part in Mike's... highlighted it let me see did i yeah let me read you this part from uh mike gambone's review okay it's uh it's about it's kind of toward the latter half of the of his review but you talk about this dangerous path of a bunch of um every tragedy you can imagine right and how this stuff gets played out in social and social movements and so on she goes like our use of doppelgangers reduces public discourse to a choice of being for something or against it. Contradiction has replaced sober, informed discussion. Klein uses examples of COVID being, quote, stuck in the binary of lockdown versus open up, unquote. Ongoing debates over public policy also apply. With respect to immigration, we debate whether the border should be open or closed and whether status and ne when neither status applies in reality. More importantly, in this binary world of rigid black versus white choices, quote, people lose the ability to imagine the perspectives of others, unquote. Client observes a profound danger in the devolved ability to listen to and understand, quote, 
in that state of literal literal thoughtlessness, i.e. an absence of thought of one's own, totalitarianism takes hold. The result of this breakdown is regretfully ironic. Klein mentions throughout the book that she and like-minded people and Wolf and her followers actually share some beliefs, especially regarding political and economic elites. However, where Klein struggles with the tangible issues of vastly disproportionate shifts in wealth that benefit a shrinking minority, conspiracy theorists pointlessly pursue debunked narratives. Arguing in favor of a living wage or reining in big pharma is not co-equal to flogging false stories that link 5G towers to COVID. Lost in endless struggles over claims, counterclaims, and personal attacks is the possibility of meaningful collective action. Doppelgangers are extremely effective distractions that lead us away from reform. Well done, Mike. Um, and I have to say, after going back and rereading his review, after reading some of these other reviews, I'm like, just read Mike's review, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I think the shame of, 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 of Mike's book review, <laughs> if I have to put it out like this, the shame of it is that is that he tried to make the book review so that it was short enough that it was readable by all of us, right? Because I know, I know you have, we'd have so much more to say about it. And I just thought he just did a great job of what he did here. But anyways, I just finished Doppelganger and it is a must read. Um, it is right now, I, I don't believe the paperback is out yet, um, but you know, as if, or maybe if it is, I don't know. I ordered the paperback actually because it was actually less expensive at this point than ordering uh, or pre-ordering a, uh, a paperback. So, or ordered the hardback rather. Excellent, excellent book. Um, so that's one thing to check out. Um, a second book that I wanna recommend to people um, is this amazing little book. It's a short book. Um, it just won the 2023 Ursula K. Le Guin Prize for Fiction. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar, Ursula K. Le Guin is an uh, uh, amazing science fiction writer, uh, one of my all-time favorite writers, um, just, uh, just great. Anyways, um, and I, I'll, I'm going to read, I'll read from you a little bit from the Ursula K. Le Guin um, Prize, um, with people, what they said about the book, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what, I've, what, I've, what I'm reading with it. So they say, congratulations to Rebecca Campbell. She's the author, winner of the 2023 Ursula K. Le Guin Prize for Arbor Reality. That's like Arbor, like Arbor, like Arbor Reality, kind of one word with one R in between. So it's like Arbor, like trees and things like that, reality, Arbor Reality. In looping link stories that travel through generations, Campbell explores the effects of climate change on one slice of British Columbia what might happen as the planet changes and how regular people might remake their homes by growing together and reconsidering other gentler ways of live in a drastically reshaped world. The selection panel praised Campbell's profoundly ethical, beautifully illuminated work saying, quote, Arbor reality is a eulogy for the world as we know it. Rebecca Campbell's extraordinarily deeply felt book explores the difficulties of the long hard project of survival. There are no heroes or villains here, only people making brave, difficult choices out of hope and love for their community, for art, knowledge, and, beautiful, and beauty. Arbor reality imagines things that we haven't yet considered about what can and will go wrong with our gardens, libraries, and archives if we don't act now, maybe even if we do. 
In her masterful and profoundly ethical stories, Campbell asks us what might be saved, what, might, what must be saved, and what it will take to do so. It's, uh, it really is, it, I'm, I'm about halfway through it, and it feels like the kind of book that needs to be read now, <laughs> if I put it like that. Uh, it's, it's really, it's a wonderful book. I mean, I think it's only, uh, God, I wish I had the page number up. But, I mean, it's like, it's like that, that thick. It was maybe 150 pages or so. Um, and it's these short chapters. So it's not like one long story, but you kind of like are moving from site to site between different people and different sets of relationships. Um, and, you know, I've been a fan, as I've said on the show many, many times of dystopian science fiction, right? You know, and I think that uh, I get a lot out of that. For me, dystopian science fiction is, you know, is, is very much what Kim Stanley Robinson talks about it as a dystopian is not about creating a sense of despair, Right? It's about showing the logical conclusions of particular kinds of tendencies so that we may act upon them now, right? Looking that you basically project them out into the future so that you can see them more fully in the present, right? That's what I've always loved about um, science fiction and dystopian science fiction in particular. Um, utopian science fiction too as well. I mean, that's where like Ursula K. Le Guin, Octavia Butler... Um, uh, so many other writers are, are really skilled uh, at being doing that kind of both and. But, but anyways, so this book really, in some ways, it's a it's a dystopian fiction in the sense that the 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 climate crisis has come to fruition already. But instead of telling a story or stories, I should say, about those disasters, the impacts on the world, and people in this kind of chaotic struggle to survive against all these different threats, and kind of like, you know, not like the Mad Max version. These are about, at least what I felt, these are more closely linked to a process that we're actually undergoing right now. A process where our climate is being destroyed and there does not seem to be the political will to do what is necessary to turn it back before it becomes a full-blown crisis. You know, just this week, there's a little bit of diversion, sorry about this, but... Um, we saw more reports come out with more devastating climate news, and they actually even say the U.S. is warming faster than the global average. Right? This is a, a new report, the authoritative report from the U.S. government. Um, it's an article from The Guardian. It says the U.S. is warming faster than the global average, and its people are suffering, quote, far-reaching and worsening, unquote, consequences from the climate crisis, with worse to come, according to an authoritative report issued by the U.S. government. An array of, quote, Increasingly harmful impacts, unquote, is hitting every corner of the vast country from extreme heat to sea level rise in Florida to depleted fish stocks and increasingly food insecurity in Alaska, the new National Climate Assessment has found. While planet heating U.S. emissions have fallen since the peaking in 20, uh, 2007, 
The reductions are still not enough to meet international targets to avert disastrous climate change. And without deeper cuts in carbon pollution, quote, severe climate risks to the United States will continue to grow, the report states. Quote, even if greenhouse gas emissions fall substantially, the impacts of climate change will continue to intensify over the next decade, unquote, the report finds, adding that choices made by the U.S. and other countries will, quote, determine the trajectory of climate change and the associated impacts for many generations to come, unquote. Notice some of the language there, the trajectory of climate change. Not whether or not climate will change, but its trajectory. And I, I don't know how to talk about this without sounding defeatist, because I'm not, right? Um, I believe that we need to act on climate change immediately. I believe that we need to organize for it, and you know, push candidates, all that kind of stuff, right? But there's also the reality of the fact that we have not listened. We as a global peoples, right, have not listened to the warnings of scientists. They're still being treated as kind of suggestions to our political leaders who are still playing these political games instead of responding to this like an actual crisis. And so increasingly, we're going to see transformations of our ways of life that are going to be impacted by these crises. So what does it look like to take a peek inside those changed lives in the not-so-distant future? And so one of the, fir the first story of, um, in this book um, starts with a professor um, who has been teaching online like for quite some time since classes were first canceled. There was a, an outbreak, so, you know, if it's like, this is like like beyond coronavirus, so it's like the next pandemic, right? So they went online for some reason there too. Climate just increase, increasingly changed, and so they the, the schools have just kept people online, right? Because that's the most effective way for them to do it. And so he realizes, well, he you know he did research or something in the 18th century or something like this, right? And so he goes to the library to go, you know, get some of these books, right? If the library is open and counters only one person there, and of course the library. There's been there's all these torrential downpours and rains and everything, and the library hasn't been taken care of because there's nobody there anymore, except for this one person who's trying to save these books. You know, it's, it's having, being impacted by rain. There's leaks, and some of the books are being destroyed. And so this one librarian person who's not even, like, there as a full-time employee um, is trying to save some of these books, right? And so that's kind of like the, the kind of any you... And that professor lives in this kind of area, you know, um, that's like, you know, your like subdivision, you know, and more and more people in that subdivision have moved away because of wildfires. And so he's one of the only people left and he's like slowly and methodically planting some trees and some grasses and things that are climate resistant are resistant to the climate change, right? Resistant to wildfires. So the kind of things that are more better suited to this particular environment that, that start in that, you know, just all this kind of stuff. And so it's these touching stories of people still trying to do good because they care about things in the world. And it's, it's a great book. So, uh, you know, Arbor Reality, if you know people like science fiction, you know people who, uh, you know, into kind of climate fiction too, the cli-fi stuff or whatever, 
or just want a kind of nice reflective book, this might be uh, a good one to check out. Arbor Reality by Rebecca Campbell. Um, what was the third book I wanted to recommend? There was one more I wanted to... Re- oh, yes. And this one, I have to, of course, I have to thank um, uh, Chris Rodkey for this one. Okay. Um, Chris Rodkey uh, basically uh, kind of alerted me to this. I saw it come up on um, in Discord, and he said had something on Facebook. And I just started listening to the audiobook of this. I need something else for the, you know, commuting back and forth to work. So um, there's a there's a paperback version of this coming out in January. So I'm going to wait for the paperback. But I said, okay, in the meantime, you know what? I got a credit that I'm gonna, I can use. So I'm going to get this audiobook, and it is awesome. Uh, and I'm only like two chapters, three, well, three chapters in, right? So um, this is a book. It's called uh, Astrotopia by Mary Jane Rubenstein. Um, it's called uh, the uh, Astrotopia: The Dangerous Religion of Corporate Space Race uh, by Mary Jane Rubenstein. Uh, Mary Jane Rubenstein is um, she is a professor at Wellesleyan, if I'm right. Let me see, Mary Jane. I should have had this up uh, beforehand. Um, she is a professor of religion and science um, at Wesleyan University. Yeah, she's at Wesleyan. And um, the do- Astrotopia, the Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. Um, there must be two different kind of titles. Anyways, um, she, uh, this book is, is awesome. And she's coming at, looking at the new, what's called new space, right? You know, the kind of privatization of space, space, this kind of, this next stage of, of development, uh, you know, we got want to go to you know Elon Musk and SpaceX want to go to Mars. They're actually launching the new. Uh, they're supposed to launch a new rocket today. I don't know if they're doing it or not. You've got uh, Jeff Bezos, right? Wants to build like space stations around Earth and turn Earth into a giant park, right? You've got all these kind of like visions by these billionaires about these futures, right? And what? Mary Jane Rubenstein does in this book is situates the discourse and the imaginary and the projects of these people of this new space within these kind of religious discourses that have been fundamental to a long history of Western colonization, imperialism, and so on. Right, and rooted into some of the worst aspects of, of you know, um, the, these kind of radical Christianity, right? I mean, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of Christianity that was mustered to, uh, to run the Crusades, to, you know, to eliminate people, that was supportive of the genocide against Native Americans, right? I mean, that kind of use of religious texts. So... It's fascinating, right? And and she's like, and, it, the, and it's hilarious. I mean, the, she's such a good writer. And so I'm like, I'm listening to this thing and I'm like laughing out loud. And then like, it's like devastating at the same time. The bigger point, I'm also, I, I'll spill the beans on this one too. So I'm, I'm working on a course right now that I'm, that I'm planning to teach in the future called Space Rhetorics, right? And um, which is working, is about a lot of the same or similar kinds of things that uh, Mary Jane Rubenstein is talking about in this book. My emphasis was not 
so much kind of religious per se, although that is one of the key discourses, one of the key narratives, sets of narratives um, that goes into how we're understanding it, but was basically saying like, look, at the time, we're at a point right now in history where we're moving from science fiction to science, like to, or, you know, space fiction about space settlement, if you will, space, even the words there, uh, about for the next stage of space exploration um, and, and turning it into realities. And on this show, if you remember, especially toward the end of COVID, I was doing a lot of focus on what was happening in this new space um, and how treaties, long-standing outer space treaties are being altered and particularly by the United States. So there's a, a, a long-standing, just to give you one example, there's a long-standing uh, outer space treaty which was signed by the, in the United Nations and it's the one that we all abide by that basically nobody can own a planetary body, right? That space is not for property. That it is to be, you know, there. So nobody can own it. It's for science, exp exploration, all this other kind of stuff. And the United States, you know, abided by all that stuff and even advocated for it, because, especially because it was so worried about things during the Cold War that Russia might claim the moon or whatever it might be. So that treaty has served to preserve a certain kind of scientific um, neutrality. Although, you know, Mary Jane Rubinstein's got me thinking about what science, but, but anyway, I'll put that aside. So th there were some new treaties that were passed, and there's, I'm, gonna, I, I, am, I am sorry about this, but I'm going to confuse the two. There were two ones. There were the Artemis Accords, right, and there were this other one that had, I, I, it has a more technical-sounding name. But in that one that has a more technical-sounding sounding name, it basically said that this new policy, right, and I think this was put forward, I don't know if it was under Obama or if it was once or it was, it, it was during the first Trump administration, or the, you know, the first few years of the Trump thing. Because, you know, Mike Pence was the guy who took over um, the space stuff. And he just happens to be this kind of religious zealot, right? Just happens to be. One of the things that happened in that, in that they shifted the, over that discourse or shifted over that policy was to say that persons, people, United States people, citizens own the resources that they can get from interplanet or from uh, planetary bodies. So in other words, if I go to the moon, okay, yeah, it's true. I can't own the moon. But if I decide to mine the moon and extract, I don't know, some kind of hydrogen or some precious metals or water, <laughs> right? Then I can own it. And that's important because under U.S. law, corporations are people. So basically what that change did is it said corporations can now lay claim in very much in the way that they lay claim to, you know, the mineral rights underneath our soil. Well, you might not be able to own my house or my backyard, but you can own everything underneath it, right? Same kind of deal. So that was a big thing. And the Artemis Accords... We're basically an updating of the the space treaty, like the one that we've operated on, and updating it. Except 
it's kind of like a coalition of the willing. I go back to like a George Bush thing, right? It was like, well, anybody who wants to do it this way can do it this way, but we're going to kind of back away from a global treaty on space and we're going to start, you know, basically say we could do it our own way. As a way to help glossing and facilitating the privatization of space. And supposedly, well, look, China is moving fast to put colonies on the moon, right? Or to see even my language here, this will go back to Gen uh, Mary Jane Rubenstein in a second, to put basically a permanent presence on the moon, right? To have a base on the moon, right? Um, India is even kind of setting up more and more stuff now. Russia, of course, always has aspirations. So this is like the new space race, right? <laughs> and so the Artemis cords are trying to give like US advantage, right? It's the way it this is. So even if you heard, you heard me catch up my language multiple times here, this is the kind of stuff that Mary Jane Rubenstein says. Okay, there's these real practical things that are, that are happening in the world, but our discourse is we use to colonize the moon. What does that mean to say colonization, right? To use colonization or settlement, settler, settler colonization, right? All that kind of stuff. Anyways, so in my, in my class that I'm developing, that we're looking at both those discourses and those treaties because in my view, rhetoric is the place where the rubber hits the road, right? We have the narratives, we have the philosophies, we have the theories that are kind of created. But once you had to make concrete decisions that are gonna enact people's, like are gonna impact people in the world and that, the way that our futures look, and then it's signed into law and policy and things like that, that's the space of rhetoric, right? So anyways, that's the class I'm designing. So I'm, I'm working on this class and then Chris Rodkey says, you know, I see him post about this. I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna have to check this out. He's like, you definitely need to read this book. The book is fantastic and uh, all kudos to him. So if you're somebody who's like, wants to, uh, who likes space, like thinks space is kind of cool, also a little bit, you know, just concerned about this privatization space race, especially as they're run by the anti-Semitic uh, uh, um, uh, Elon Musk and uh, the kind of all-consuming Jeff Bezos. And you're curious about what their utopias are and how they're embedded in long traditions of colonizer discourse. Check out this book. It's so good. It's so good. So again, it's called Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion, The Corporate Space Race by Mary Jane Rubenstein. And yes, I am going to be reaching out to her too as well to see if I can get her on the show. I would love to have that conversation. I think it would just be a, a super conversation to have. So um, anyways, uh, those are my, uh, you know, pre-Thanksgiving uh, suggestions. If you're looking for kind of cool gifts to give people on your list. Um, Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. Um, Abhor Reality. Oh, I clicked it off. Oh, I hate the fact that I can't remember people's names really good. Uh, <clears throat> I just clicked on Rebecca Campbell. I'm sorry, Rebecca Campbell. Uh, Abor, uh, Arbor Reality by Rebecca Campbell. Um, um, does it say it here? Oh, I wanted to see if I can give you the page, the page count on that. Let me just see. Additional information. Yeah, 117 pages. Like, it's a really thin book. It's really, I'm telling you, it's, it's totally worth it. So Arbor Reality by Rebecca Campbell. Um, Naomi Klein's Doppelganger. Um, and Astro Reality um, from Mary Jane Rubenstein. Uh, do check those out if you can. Um, they'll be well worth the reads. Uh, and we'll have more for you um, kind of in the next, several, uh, the next several shows just as a way to kind of, you know, um, do little, little, our own little book talk going on here, right? <laughs> As it is. 
Anyways, everybody, that's going to do it for us today. And uh, I wish you all a super weekend. I want to remind you, um, we will be off next week. Um, so there'll be no show on Monday. There'll be no show next Friday. We'll come back the following Monday um, and out to Coop Live. Uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, I've got a couple... Uh, um, and re I've reached out to a few folks uh, for one of those shows. So hopefully we can land it before before we go. And I'll let you know as soon as I can about who we're going to have on the show for Out to Coop Live on that Monday after Thanksgiving. Um, for now, I uh, for those of you who will be with family, um, gathering with family, uh, I hope it is a uh, it's something that will help fuel right um, you, help rejuvenate you, will help. Um, give you the rest and opportunity to reflect upon the amazing work um, that has gone organizing kind of around here. Um, as we rem were reminded that folks in Souderton, that folks in the Kutztown area school district were not as lucky. They went the other way. And so this is an opportunity to kind of, um, kind of refuel, if you will, um, so that we can kind of reach out and start helping others um, and kind of spread the knowledge that, um, that has been earned and the work that has been um, figured out and done. Um, in our local school districts. Anyways, I wish you all a great, um, a great break and vacation if you have one coming up. And if you got the days off, that's awesome. I hope you have a little downtime that you can spend with, uh, with family and friends um, that will help nurture you and um, resuscitate, not resuscitate the wrong word, <laughs> rejuvenate you. <laughs> I feel dead half the time right now. So anyways, all right, everybody. Uh, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Thank you for all your support. I am eternally grateful for everyone who listens to the show, who everyone supports the show, becoming a member. You too can become a member um, and become a patron of Raging Chicken by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. Um, you can do that day, um, do that today. Like again, it's as little as five bucks a month. It's the you know price of a good beer once a month. Um, where you could go out and kind of support the work that we do, support this podcast, support our efforts to help other people produce their podcast. You can do all that. Patreon.com slash RC Press. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Have a good break. See you on the flip side. See ya!